I think that what some people tend to think at first when they hear like a story like my own, oh, well, meditation must be easy. And all I have to do is sit down and close my eyes. And then they close their eyes and then their thoughts start coming up. And they just basically have a meditation on their thoughts. And they say, this is not for me. I can't do it. And they walk away. Mm -hmm. And I think what I remind them about is that this is a process of learning to be with your mind and to tell your mind, you know, yes, I understand you've got thoughts and you have important things the rest of the day, but can you just let them be put aside for now? And can you just sit with your breath for a few minutes? And I find that if I just tell myself that I'm going to be patient and I'm going to um, perhaps sit for, I typically, I started sitting probably for about 20 minutes a day. And then I worked my way up to about 45 minutes to an hour. And sometimes I'll also meditate for like 15 or 20 minutes or more in the evening, but I found that for me, it was more the perseverance. Hi, I'm Biz Cush, a life coach and therapist and your host here on the Awaken Your Wise Woman podcast. We're talking to women all over the world who found their way back to themselves, to their inner knowing, to their intuition, to their wisest self. We're exploring how to feel alive, authentic, engaged, and fully present in your life. Let's awaken your wise woman. Hi, and welcome back to the Awaken Your Wise Woman podcast. I'm your host, Biz Cush, and I'm very, very excited to share with you my conversation with Marjorie Wallacott, our guest today. But before that, I just wanted to share how you can reach out to me if you are interested in working with me. So if you are looking for a life coach to help you better align with your values, trusting yourself, working from your deepest inner core, yourself, working from that place in your life, coming from that place in your life, whether it's for your work or yourself, you can reach out to me at elizabethcushcoaching.com forward slash book dash a dash session, or go to the homepage and click on the link. Let's talk. So about the interview today, it resonated with me. My conversation with Marjorie just resonated with me in a way that recognizing that for the longest time, I sort of held my more spiritual side in one one hand and my working more practical side in the other where the training and the knowledge and the science was what I held more firmly to and what I'm better understanding about myself as a clinician, as a coach, is that bringing in the spiritual side, bringing in intuition and your gut sense, your felt sense is so important. It just brings more truth and a fuller sense of me into my work, which is amazing. So I hope that this conversation will also resonate with you. And if you're looking to bring more spirituality into your life, whether it's your work or your personal life or both, let's talk. Let's talk. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Marjorie Woolicott. Today, my guest is Marjorie Woolicott, PhD and professor and the chair of the Department of Human Physiology and member of the Institute 
of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon for 35 years. She is president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Scientists and research director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. She has received over $7.2 million in research funding and published more than 200 scientific articles on her research in medicine, meditation, and spiritual awakening. And today we're going to be talking about her journey from neuroscientist to meditation researcher and how that came about, but how it had also opened doors to her own spiritual side that she was then able to integrate into her working life as a professor and as a researcher into meditation and spiritual awakening. And I really feel like her sharing her own story and the process of how meditation has changed her life and opened up her curiosity into how it can change our brains and our physiology was just so interesting. And I really love the conversation. So at the end, we talk a little bit about near-death experiences. We just kind of touch on that briefly, but you can stay tuned for that where she shares a little bit about how her research has has moved into that area as well. So maybe we will get her back on the podcast to talk about that. Here's my conversation with Marjorie Woolicott. Hi, Marjorie, and welcome to the Awaken Your Wise Woman podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. But for those who may not know who you are, if you could share a little bit about yourself and your inspirations in your work or what inspired you to do the work you do. Sure. I mean, maybe I'll even start it out when I was a child, because I realized that our parents often influence us more than mm-hmm. we think. And I was very fortunate to have two parents who, first of all, loved the idea of raising their children in as natural a setting as they could. So we grew up in Southern California, but they bought an acre of land in which we had, I think, a cow that my mother milked. When I wanted to have a horse, when I was, I think, a young girl, she said, well, I'll give you a cow because this is more practical. (laughs) (laughs) It still has four legs. It's about the same size. Well, finally, I got a horse when I was in the seventh grade, but I realized we had goats, we had chickens, we had cats, and there was a feeling of joy in being outside and playing in our garden with corn and berries and all sorts of other things there. And the other aspect was that my parents loved the arts and knowledge so that every Friday or Saturday night, my dad would take my sister and myself to the local library and we would collect, check out maybe like about 10 books. We would read them all. And then the next week we would go to the other local library and check out another 10 books and we would go back and forth. And so I was raised with this joy of learning about the world and joy of being in nature. And also my mother loved music. And so I started playing the flute and then the oboe when I was like seven years old. And so I also had that aspect. And these were just simple, ordinary, regular, middle-class parents. There was nothing special in terms of careers or things like that, but it was their love of learning and knowledge and the arts that just made me wake up to the beauty of the world around me. So I think that's what started me out. And I also want to mention, there's a funny story about, I think it was when I was about four or five years old, my mother 
was trying to get rid of some gophers that were in our front lawn and she killed one and it was lying there on the lawn. And I had this incredible desire to see what was inside of it. So I went inside um, and got a paring knife and my sister reminds me, she was there too. And she helped me as a four-year-old, like opened the little gopher up to see all of the insides that were inside of it to understand what a gopher was really about. So I think that my scientific predilections were there from an early age. And that then moved on to my going to graduate school in neuroscience, getting my PhD in neuroscience. And I should say my bachelor's degree in music before my PhD in neuroscience and leading me then on to really trying to understand our brain and our mind and I should also say that when I was young, I was intrigued by the idea of a soul. When we would go to church on Sunday mornings and they would talk about the soul. And I was like, if we do have a soul, where would it be in the brain? And in high school, my high school teacher actually had us reading William James, who was the father of modern psychology. And he talked about these things. And so I was intrigued by that. But as soon as I got to college and took my first biology courses, it was understood that It's the material universe that's real, that there is not a spiritual aspect to the universe that's real, according to my scientific teachers. And I listened and it made sense at the time because I hadn't had any real spiritual experiences of my own. And so I simply accepted that and moved into a scientific career that was very much materialist oriented, meaning that I loved studying the brain. I thought it was fascinating, but I just thought our brain produces our awareness and our consciousness, like probably most other neuroscientists of today. So I think that that was the start of my career and where I entered not only graduate school, but then my first position, first of all, at a university in Virginia and then at the University of Oregon. Mm. Well, it's interesting. And I just started reading your uh, most recent book, I think, Infinite Awareness. Is that right? Yes. Where you share some of your story too, but that this sense of is it your brain, like the soul and the brain or the mind and the brain, like where, where do they meet? Are they different things? Is this a more universal, reversal concept of consciousness and spirituality? And although I think I've felt that, I haven't really thought it through in terms of how does, how does it work? Like, how do we get there? How do we know what's what? And and so I'm excited to have you here to kind of talk about that and, and just share how you've come to where you are today and your, your knowledge and understanding of spirituality. Uh, and I should say that, right, that definitely... As an early young professor, I was, of course, coming in from this more scientific materialist perspective, but my sister had been meditating for a couple of years. She had gone to Hawaii and had become part of a spiritual sort of seeking community there in, this was like in the seventies. And she then at one Christmas time, when we were visiting our parents, in fact, in Arizona, she told me a little bit about meditation and we actually tried it a bit. And it seemed intriguing to me. I was certainly curious. And She reminds me that on the way home from that Christmas vacation in Arizona, there had been a terrible plane accident over Southern California. And I was very frightened of plane flying, especially after that accident, and didn't really want to get on that plane to go back to Oregon. And she said to me when I was walking sort of through the airport with her, I have something that can help you. And I was totally in my anxious mood, ready to listen to anything. And she she said, I have a mantra. And she gave me this mantra, which is Soham, which literally is the sound of your breath. And she said, just repeat this mantra, the sound of your breath as you get on the plane and see what happens. And I did 
that. And interestingly, it shifted from the usual white knuckled takeoff of flights that I usually experienced to one of pure enjoyment of like watching the clouds going by in the sky the entire way home to Oregon. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Hmm. And later on, she then invited me for my birthday present. I think it was the next summer to go to the Catskill Mountains of New York to visit a meditation um, center and to receive initiation from a meditation master from India. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, but I was also skeptical, but I thought, you know, I want to see my sister for my birthday. That'll be fun. And so I'll go. And I think this was really that key moment in my life that shifted my awareness from purely the one of only seeing the world through the five senses to something perhaps broader than that. And I'll just give you a a sort of the brief story is like on that first morning in this meditation retreat, we were told that the teacher would come around and initiate each person there. And it was described again as this awakening of the spiritual energy inside of us. And it was supposed to happen through the Swami's touch. Now, again, the scientist in me was skeptical, but I was there for the weekend. And I said, hey, I just, I'm going to be curious and see what happens. And when he came around the room, my eyes were closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So when I felt his fingers right between my eyes and on the place right between my eyebrows, and I felt what seemed like a current of electricity go from his fingers down into my own being and down to the center of my chest. I had this sense of utter certainty about what happened. And it felt like a mini lightning bolt went to my heart and then began expanding outward, this energy like flowing through me that was almost like an energy of pure love and nectar flowing through me and beyond me. And a sense of I'm home, I'm home, my heart is my home. And it was the first time I had ever had that sort of an experience of, oh, this is what home is. It's being in touch with the core of your own being. And I remember I went back to my university the very next day and I got up spontaneously at 5 a.m. and I meditated and I've been doing it ever since. It was like, I had the sense that now I knew that just under the surface of my awareness, there simmered this sweet ecstasy. And if I could just quiet the mind down, I could tap into that. And I wanted more of it. So I think that was that that first shift of like, oh, there's more to the universe than I thought. And now I was curious to understand more about that. Yeah. Well, and just you describing there was that sort of scientific part of you that was a little more skeptical. And yet the curiosity is what really allowed this experience to happen that gave you that openness of investigating, but from a curious way instead of a sort of more materialistic scientific way. Yeah. Yeah. And I also want to add something that, because I've watched other people um, have somewhat similar experiences and some people like me say, wow, this is amazing. And they explore it further. And a few other people allow their mind and their doubts to come in and they say, oh no, it was just my mind. It wasn't real. And then, of course, if they have other friends that are skeptics, their friends agree with them, and they don't really ever discuss it again. And it's almost like they take this blanket and put it over their experience and they hide it because partly I think they're worried about their credibility in the world. A lot of their friends and parents and family say, hey, it it can't be real. We know. We're the scientists. We know. So I also understand that for me, it was important to keep the curiosity alive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, fear and mistrust of our experience or what we know can lead to sort of a shutting off and 
sort of casting aside, or as you say, putting a blanket over it and not exploring further. But it's lovely that you went on to try to recreate. Now, I know for me, depending on the day, meditation is either this uh, very enlightening, very blissful, and sometimes it can be hard. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes my mind goes in a million directions. Other times I, I, I kind of just zone out and we call it dissociation in psychology, but just sort of disappear and sort of wake up at the end of the meditation. But I feel like all of it is valid, right? It's all telling me something about where I am in that moment. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I talk to people about meditation, this very often comes up because I think a lot of people have begun to explore it. And I think that what some people tend to think at first when they hear like a story like my own, oh, well, meditation must be easy. And all I have to do is sit down and close my eyes. And then they close their eyes and then their thoughts start coming up and they just basically have a meditation on their thoughts. And they say, this is not for me. I can't do it. And they walk away. Mm -hmm. And I think what I remind them about is that this is a process of learning to be with your mind and to tell your mind, you know, yes, I understand you've got thoughts and you have important things the rest of the day, but can you just let them be put aside for now? And can you just sit with your breath for a few minutes? And I find that if I just tell myself that I'm going to be patient and I'm going to um, perhaps sit for, I typically, I started sitting probably for about 20 minutes a day. And then I worked my way up to about 45 minutes to an hour. And sometimes I'll also meditate for like 15 or 20 minutes or more in the evening. But I found that for me, it was more the perseverance. And here's why I had the perseverance. In that first moment, my heart told me there was something more to reality than my mind had really experienced. And my heart was in some ways now leading me and saying, okay, I know the mind may be bored during this particular meditation, but I think if you just sit there with me, mind, eventually you'll quiet down enough to feel the peace that's really there underneath the thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it more is if the heart can really talk to you, or if you can listen to your heart in addition to your mind's boredom, eventually the thoughts do quiet down. And then you find that exquisite place of peace and stillness and often this love slash joy. I don't know sometimes how to separate out the experience of the love and the joy inside when we get to that place of true stillness inside of our heart. And it's like, that's what my essence truly is. And that's what I want to bring out into my day when I leave the meditation mat and go out to my regular job. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of your regular job as a, at least began as a neuroscientist, yes. how did these two parts of you <laughs> align the scientific, more material mind or, you know, ideas as well as this more existential, broader sense of what's really, what the essence of you is? Yeah. And that was certainly interesting. And I, I think I say in the book that for the first many years of having then started meditating and still being a university professor, I left two separate lives. And in, when I would go into the university in the morning, I would talk to my students and colleagues about my neuroscience rehabilitation research and what we were doing. And then when I would go to a meditation program at night, I'd be talking to my spiritually oriented friends about the wonders of meditation. And it was like they were two different personalities. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I found that it was getting more and more uncomfortable. And I'll give you one example that I think some people can appreciate. My husband loves to meditate and he's much more inclined to talk about his joys of meditation, including with my scientific colleagues. And so we would be having a dinner with my scientific friends 
And he would bring up one of his favorite topics, which might be like Reiki energy healing or perhaps acupuncture or something of that sort, only to get this kick under the table from me as I would try to change the subject because I was worried about losing my credibility with my scientific colleagues. Mm -hmm. And I think that was always my issue of the two lives. It's like, can I really share this with my scientific colleagues and the people who've not had these experiences? And then finally, at a certain point, I got tired of living those two separate lives. And I said, why don't I, actually, I'm now a full professor. I have tenure, all the things I need. Why don't I start doing research on meditation and on consciousness in my own laboratory at the university? Mm. And I realized that I could actually find students that would love to do that sort of research for their PhD thesis. And so that's how it really began in terms of that integration. And I began having a lot of fun doing that. And I also should say that the first paper that I wrote on meditation was actually because a previous student in our department who went on to go to UC Berkeley and become a very well-known psychology professor had a student who wanted to do a PhD thesis on meditation. And she did the research and she finished the PhD thesis and then she wanted to publish it, but he didn't want his name on a study that was related to meditation because he just, you know, he was a materialist scientist. And so he came to me at one of our neuroscience meetings that, that where we were talking with each other. And he said, you know, I have this student and, and I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. And he says, well, would you like to help her write up her PhD thesis? And I said, absolutely. So uh, that was my very first foray. And then I began with my own students doing more research. And I had a wonderful time, again, out of my curiosity saying, how does meditation begin to change your brain? How does it begin to change your behavior? And what can we study in a scientific laboratory very objectively about how it begins to transform human beings' lives? And so, I mean, we found out things like many other laboratories, which show that for example, your executive attentional system, which is sort of like in your prefrontal lobes of your cortex, gets a lot stronger so you can make very clear and careful decisions and not let your emotional parts of your brain, like your amygdala, overrun your actions and control you. And we found that certain parts of the brain actually seem to get also thicker. When you look at, there's a lot of interesting research of people around the country now that show the more you meditate, the longer you meditate, the thicker certain parts of your cortex, like your executive attention system, get so that you become more successful in the world, more able to focus and concentrate on what you want to focus on and also become happier. So that was the fun part of doing this research. So yeah, I yeah. enjoyed that. But I want to say one thing, too, and that is that as I was doing this research, along with my rehabilitation research, it was hard to convince many of my colleagues that it was worthwhile research. And I'll just give you one example. And that was talking to my department head probably about maybe 10 years before I thought of, of retiring. I said to him, I'd love to teach a course in complementary medicine because we have a lot of human physiology majors that want to go on to medical school and nursing school and physical therapy school. And I said, it would be nice to show them that there are a lot of different ways of healing. And I said, I'd like to teach it like to our seniors um, and really talk about the research that shows that these things are valid. And he looked at me and he said, Marjorie, he said, I don't think our students are really going to want to take a course like this. I think not our majors. He says, why don't you open it up to the whole university and maybe some freshmen will want to take it. And I said, excuse me, why don't we try first and see <laughs> if our um, seniors would like to take it? Because I want to talk about research and a freshman will not understand the research. So in fact, he let me do it on a trial basis. And of course, the very first time it was taught, 
The course filled up instantly and we had a waiting list, like about 50 people long. And finally I ended up having like about 50, they said they would cap it out at 50 people. It was supposed to be a special capstone course of only 30, but they allowed a few more in it. We had 50 people sign up. And that was the way it always was the whole time I took it. And what I loved was that these students were brought up in a materialist, medically oriented perspective, and yet they were curious enough to take the course. And what they did in the course is they wrote up two papers on a particular modality of complementary medicine, like it, um, it could be meditation, it could be acupuncture, it could be energy healing. And then they would have to go to the literature and look to see what scientific evidence there is for or against the efficacy of that particular type of medicine. And by the time they were through with that term in the course, they became convinced themselves that these things worked because they went to the literature out of their own curiosity and wrote up a paper about it. Mm -hmm. So I loved watching their transformation during the course of the term from often skeptical in the beginning to starting to do the research and then giving a presentation to their fellow students and saying, hey, here's what it shows. So there's an example of curiosity, again, helping. And I praised my department chair for allowing me to do it that first term. And then it became a regular. And in fact, when I finally retired, there was nobody in the department to take it over, but a lot of students were sad that it was no longer going to be offered. Yeah. Yeah. It feels so important too, to me, to be bringing practitioners or new students out into the world who would be doing work that could then also recommend or explore within their own clientele, like other modalities of healing, because there's so much, I think the more we allow the sort of the energy work, the less traditional methods of healing, like I've seen and experienced greater levels of healing in myself through trauma and all of that. Yeah. And, and what I keep reminding my students about is that we're not saying that you should shift from our regular traditional medicine to only complementary medicine, but it, I love the hospitals that have this integrative medicine approach. And they say, look, you can choose from our palate and you may want to do some of this and some of that, but just to understand that we're a whole human being and therefore we want medicine that can actually address the whole human being. And a lot of the students got that. Some of them actually went on to go to a naturopathic medicine college or to take a course in acupuncture besides the other courses that they were taking in the regular medical school. So I thought it was beautiful to see them begin to understand the more holistic approach. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. I also want to say that I can totally relate to this sense of having uh, your story of the two parts of you feeling so separated and needing to bring them together. Yeah. As I began my therapy work, I felt like I had this professional me and this personal me and like it took a very long time to find a way to integrate both of those. So I felt like I was showing up in the world in a really, truly as myself in both places. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to energy healing, more alternative ways of yeah, bringing healing to our bodies and our souls, how do you sort of for maybe someone who doesn't quite understand what this sort of energy work means, like how do you share that sense of like the human body holding this energy that, I don't know, that we can get in touch with and in tune and yeah, heal through? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that, first of all, I should mention that because my own first spiritual experience felt like new energy moving through me, 
So I now had a new sense of that energy and that experience. I then began to really wonder what on earth that was. And so first of all, I began to read and I realized that when you hear and read the experience show, um, topic of acupuncture and go to the research on acupuncture, they're talking about meridians of energy in your body. And they talk about these subtle energy channels that are in a certain sense on top of the regular energy channels of the nerves and the muscles and the heart and et cetera in the body. And they're sort of interpenetrating each other. So I began to have an understanding that both could be true, that yes, I have the physical body and as a doctor, one may want to work on the physical portion of the body, but we also have subtle energy fields that can also be perhaps um, manipulated in positive ways to unblock energy that's stagnant or something like that. So that really helped. And then I began to see that there are ways of looking at this from an objective point of view. And maybe I'll just take a step back and say, when I give now research seminars related to science and meditation, I talk about two perspectives. And one is the objective scientific perspective I did all of my early career, but the other is what I call the subjective or first person perspective. And I feel that both of those perspectives are equally valid and we have to consider both in medicine and in science. And so what I've discovered is that when I looked at the research on Reiki, and looked at what was going on in that, I found that the most interesting papers were ones where they tried to do a very careful controlled study. And I'll just give you an example of one. This particular woman decided to do a controlled study on Reiki where she actually had, I think three different groups. One was people that actually had a person near them, basically giving them Reiki touch healing. And it was over, I think, like a nine-week period. She had a group that was having distant Reiki healing. And then she had a group that was basically getting the placebo. And they weren't told basically what group they were necessarily in. Were they in the placebo or the regular like distance Reiki healing? And in the placebo, they just basically did nothing but have like, I think it was like the hands over the body, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they looked at the change in the person's. They were looking at in this case, I believe, at anxiety and depression and stress in the person's life. And they basically did a particular careful um, psychological questionnaire on how these stress-related things changed over time in the three groups. And then they also asked for the person's first-person experience of what the Reiki felt like. So they had both of those things. And what you find is that there was a significant difference between the placebo group in terms of how they improved versus the control, the regular experimental group. And also when you read the comments of the people in the regular experimental group, often they would say, I could feel the energy moving into my body. It was literally a palpable feeling. And I I literally felt that something was changing. Mm -hmm. So I think there you had the objective scientific paper, but you also had the first person experiences of what it felt like. And that's the way I think that we should do more research in the future, combining those two perspectives so that we can understand, yes, here it is. And this is the change that's going on with the healing. And here is the first person experience. But I want to add one more thing. We still don't understand scientifically the mechanism behind the way energy medicine works. But the question that we keep bringing up, I think those of us who are scientists that say we should still study these things is that when people first found that aspirin worked, they didn't know the mechanism about why aspirin worked. When we used to use herbs back before we had modern science, we knew certain herbs worked, everyone used them, but we didn't know the mechanism. We still use them. 
And I think until they discover the mechanism behind acupuncture or Reiki or other things, it doesn't mean we should stop using them. We should just do the studies that show that yes, they are valid compared to a placebo, et cetera. But in fact, it's fine to wait until you actually know the specific mechanism without throwing the whole thing out. Hmm. Boy, yeah, that feels so important and such a logical way to go about it. But I could see, you know, if you were truly just a scientific mind, that might be hard to to allow that or something. I don't know. Actually, and maybe I can just bring up one a quick anecdote about my alternative and complementary medicine class, because there was one student in there when I remember she first came in, we were about to have a practitioner, because I would always bring the practitioner into the class so that they could talk to the class. And then we would also look at the research. And this person worked on homeopathy. Now, when you know about homeopathy, when they're making these homeopathic medicine concoctions, they reduce them in their concentration until they're so dilute that there isn't even one molecule left, but they are basically shaking them it's understood that the energy of that medicine has gone into the liquid. And as they're being shaken, the liquid actually holds a new different like energetic form. And that's what's the powerful thing, according to their theory. Now, the student was infuriated that somebody would actually think that something without a molecule of that original substance would still be useful. And she was almost like foaming at the mouth when she was talking to this practitioner. And again, he said, look, you need to go to the research literature and see whether a control substance versus the actual homeopathic remedy works better. And we found a number of articles that showed that in fact, the homeopathic medicine worked. And at the end of the term, after she had written her papers on um, homeopathy and other medicines, she actually came to me. I think we happened to meet um, when I was getting coffee at a coffee shop nearby. And she came to me and she said, Marjorie, I want you to know that this is one of the most influential and powerful courses I have ever taken at the University of Oregon. And I really appreciate what you brought to us in the course of that term. And I think it was because she could then begin to let her curiosity ask questions and not just stick to her scientific dogma that she had heard in earlier scientific courses. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes, I think it takes, well, maybe not a special person, but it does take that curiosity, right? That openness of, of spirit and mind to allow that maybe just this very more strict way of looking at our bodies and healing, maybe there's more, maybe there's more. Yeah. And so I'd love to know for you personally that bringing this spiritual side into your life and being open to it and exploring it and bringing it into your work, how has that shifted things for you in your life? Yeah, and it's been a beautiful process. And, you know, first of all, I want to say that I think we should all realize that everything happens in its own time. And so this was a process that went throughout my scientific career. And there was that moment when I started doing my first meditation research in my laboratory, and that was exciting. And then I started teaching my first complementary medicine class, and that was exciting, sharing it with all the other students. And then about five years before I retired, I said, I want to understand this more in my own life. And I want to write down what I know about research in the area of spirituality and consciousness so that I can understand it better and integrate it better. So that's when I started writing my book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Mm -hmm. And I was still teaching my graduate students. And when the book was about to come out, 
then be published, I told my last two graduate students, I said, look, when the book comes out, you may lose all credibility as a young PhD student who's now going on to your own career because I may have lost my credibility. And I said, you know, if that happens, that happens. But in fact, it didn't happen at all. And I think partly the reason it didn't happen is that my materialist colleagues wouldn't read a book called Infinite Awareness. And so they were aware of that side of my research. And the other thing was that you know, I still, by the way, have a textbook that I wrote um, that is now in, coming into its sixth edition called Motor Control Translating Research into Clinical Practice about neurorehabilitation, basically, that I wrote with a wonderful colleague, Anne Shumway Cook, who's a physiotherapist, PhD, and also a meditator. And that book, because it brings the scientific research into practice in the physical therapy and clinical setting, has also made us well known in that area. And so we're very, very credible. Mm -hmm. And so I think the beauty of what's happened to me is that as I've gone into the research on consciousness, because of my initial credibility as a scientific researcher, textbook writer, translating research into practice, people want to hear what I have to say because they trust that credibility. And therefore, when I bring the research to them, that shows that consciousness may be in fact fundamental and not just the product of the activity of neurons in our brain, they listen and they go to the research themselves, they read the books themselves, and then they make their own judgment. And I always say, make your own judgment. I mean, don't rely on somebody else's opinion, read the literature, but be curious. And again, we get back to that curiosity. And so that's what's really happened. And I think the fun part of it is that once I wrote that book and then I began to go to some scientific conferences, like there's a conference called Towards the Science of Consciousness in Tucson, Arizona. And I gave my first talk on my research there and then began to branch out to other places. People then began asking me to give more talks and to interact with other researchers doing research on the nature of consciousness. Is it fundamental? Is it something that lives beyond the death of the body? And I have met so many interesting new people that are in science, but are outside of that materialist arena. And we have wonderful times now doing this research together. And, and you know, one way I look at it, because I often talk to people about the fact that we each have a four or a five-year-old inside of us that loves to play. And I now feel like I have this, my sandbox of play is this research in the area of, for example, post-materialist science, like near-death experiences and after-death communication when, for example, your mother who has died comes back to you and talks to you about the fact that she's fine on the other side. And you're trying to understand, is that real? Is that just my imagination? What do I know? Well, I get to explore whether it's real or not doing these studies with other people. And so I'm having the best time in the world expanding my research to include these other things as well. Wow. That's, that's so cool and so amazing. And Maybe I'll have, if you'd be willing to bring you back on the podcast to talk about near-death experiences and consciousness and because that's a whole nother conversation and so intriguing yeah. to me I was just talking to some friends slash colleagues about all of us are healers and our different experiences with ghosts, spirits, afterlife and it was yeah. very interesting to hear. This is the first time we've really talked about it, but how many of us have had some sort of connection there. So was, yeah. I'd love to have you back to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And just one little thing about that too. I realized that as you're talking, 
one thing I talk about in my, some of my workshops is how we silo or quarantine those experiences and don't share them with other people because it's not accepted in our society. And then we find someone that actually has had it too. And suddenly it opens up a whole new part of our friendship and our relationship as we share that with each other. And I'm trying to help people be willing to at least try to approach that with their family and their colleagues, because if we don't, we're never going to find out how many people have actually had these experiences. Mm. That is so true. I can tell you who my husband, who is a very, a much more concrete thinker than I am. I've shared his, both of his parents have passed and I dream about them, mostly his mother all the time. And she comes to me and hugs me and I feel her presence. And he's like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, he's like, I don't really want to hear about any of this. I'm like, but it was so lovely. She just gave me this hug and I could feel her. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So at some point, I mean, so I just wrote a paper about that that was published this last year, a study with about almost a thousand people responding about their experiences. And it was phenomenal. I mean, it opened up to me, me to a lot of new understanding about this beloved people coming back to us to connect with us and say, hey, I'm fine. Everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, I will reach out to you another time to schedule that conversation because I think that's fascinating too. And just again, so curious and open to all of it. So yeah. Well, thank you, Marjorie. I appreciate your taking the time and sharing your wisdom around all of this, this sort of uh, our ability to uh, tap into a deeper part of ourselves that isn't just mind, body, organs, but yeah, the energy within. Thank you. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed talking to Marjorie today and it reinforced for me the importance of one, of being curious, of being open to learning more, to being open to our experiences in more visceral ways, like what is happening energetically within our bodies that can teach us, help us learn a little bit more about ourselves. And I know for me personally, energy healing and more alternative ways of bringing therapeutic benefits into my life have just shifted and changed the dynamic of my relationship with myself, how I feel about me, and just me energetically as I enter the world. And as Marjorie was sharing her story of these two sides of her, the material scientist and the more spiritual, curious nature that she felt were so separate and isolated, like I truly resonated with that story because for so long, I felt as if I showed up in the world as Elizabeth Cush therapist and Biz Cush friend meditator, regular life biz. And the reality is I'm both of those and that I have learned to enter into my world, into my relationships as a more integrated version of those two parts, which feels so much better, so much more like me And it is an energy shift within. So 
I hope that you also got something out of this conversation. I think that the theme of curiosity, which came up throughout the conversation, is key. If we can be curious about ourselves, about our healing, about all of our parts, about energy work and spiritual healing, I think that it can lead to growth and expansion and a greater knowledge of self. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have thoughts or comments or just want to shoot me a note, go to elizabethcushcoaching.com and you can find a contact form there and reach out. If you would like to sign up for the newsletter, my blog posts, more information about me and my work, you can also find it there at elizabethcushcoaching.com. I look forward to connecting with you and your energy next time. Thanks for listening to the Awaken Your Wise Woman podcast. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Music by Andy Cush, sound editing by Laura Disler, and show notes by Kathy Cush. If you'd like more information about me, BizCush, and the resources shared today, go to awakenyourwisewoman.com.